Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Hello and welcome to Corner Table Talk. Today, my guest is the chairman and CEO of ARC Restaurants. ARC is a publicly traded restaurant company with restaurants in New York City, Florida, Washington, D.C., Las Vegas, and many other places. The CEO, Michael Weinstein, is a 40-year veteran of the industry, and I've known Michael for 20-plus years. ARC Restaurants grosses over $160 million annually. Of course, that was pre-COVID. Uh, but Michael is just a trendsetter and a pioneer in our industry, and we are so pleased to have him today. Um, so, Michael, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit things off here with what I call our little short order segment. A couple of questions I just want to fire at you, get your little quick response, and then we'll roll into a, a conversation. There are a bunch of things I want to touch on with you. So, favorite vacation spot? Oh, you know, um, I must say that uh, about... 15 years ago, I took my first trip to Africa, Kenya and Tanzania. I, I spent 22 days there, and it was enthralling for me. Uh, the vastness of it, the people were great, you know, um, uh, the cacophony of colors, uh, you know, it was really to see the to see the animals and see the great migration from Tanzania to from Kenya into Tanzania. Literally, you know, you see a million animals, not using that as an exaggeration. There are a million animals, and I was just blown away by 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 the whole thing. And um, and I've gone back three times. I've been to Rwanda uh, to see the silverback gorillas. If if I had my druthers, Africa is one of the places I would return. I also loved Australia. I have relatives in Australia, but I I loved Sydney. Uh, so so those are. Long haul vacations, I'd say, but I take all my vacations with my children, and uh, it's just a great time for the family to discover new things. Yeah, man, those are great places you name. Thank you for that. Most memorable meal? Well, I had I had a funny experience. I uh, you know I owned Lutes in New York for a while, and Andre Sultner was a famous French chef who came over here in the fifties. And Lutes was a four-star restaurant, and I uh, he he sold it to me when he wanted to retire, and we kept it going. And my then wife Nancy, who you know is still my closest friend, and I wanted to go to Paris, um, and and I called Andre up and and I said, Andre, could you get me a reservation to Thai Levant, uh, which is like the Lutes of Paris, of one of them, and. Uh, I have two favorite meals. This is one of them. And the only reservation he could get uh, was for the, for the lunch the day we landed. And uh, I fell asleep in the middle of the meal. I was so tired. <laughs> uh, so that's that's a memorable meal. That is memorable. <laughs> and she kept uh, kicking me and said, you can't fall asleep. Here. <laughs> and the owner kept on coming over. Is something wrong? And then um, uh, there's a restaurant in the south of France called Bacon. And Nancy and I flew to, to Nice. This was on another trip. And uh, we had a reservation for dinner at Bacon. We were supposed to land at 3 in the afternoon. The plane did not land until 9 at night. It was raining. It was really delayed. We called Bacon, and this was before cell phones or anything. And uh, we were fumbling at the airport to try to figure out how to call the restaurant. And we apologized that we couldn't notify them. 
And uh, we said, can we come over now? And he says, can you get here right away? We, we closed at 10. And by the time we rented a car, we got there at about 10 after 10. And they they had closed the restaurant, but they kept the table open for us. And so we had the whole restaurant to ourselves. It was magical. As, so, as Michael and Nancy Weinstein should. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This, this one's going to be hard for you. <laughs> the 69 Mets or the 73 Knicks? 73 Knicks. Just because you own Clyde's restaurant in Manhattan? I, I love Clyde. It's not so much that I own the restaurant. I love him. He's just a spectacular man. And uh, I happened to go to those games, and they were, they were thrilling. Yeah. Well, Clyde's is a fantastic place that Michael owns, and he's partners with Walt Frazier, of course, the, the legendary New York Nick. I love the Mets. I love the Knicks, too, but, Michael, I can still name every player on that 69 uh, New York Mets team. I can't name one single Met these days, so <laughs> <laughs> whatever you. that means. What is, what is your favorite New York City restaurant that you don't own? You know, it, it, it shifts. Um, I, I like little joints. I mean, I, there's not, none in particular. Uh, New York is such a great restaurant town. Uh, it's hard to pick one. I Every once in a while, I, I would tell you this. Uh, there are plenty of places that are built that I don't think will work, and they work fine. And, and uh, there's places I think that should work, and they don't work. So I'm always curious about the next new thing. I, I would say that Balthazar and, you know, is just a great restaurant for the energy that they put into it, the recent ones. But there are so many. I, yeah. I love Da Umberto, which is an Italian restaurant on 17th Street, which has been around forever. And somehow, you know, it, it just feels good. Good, as good today as it did when it opened 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess I get the most excitement about going to a meal when every once in a while, it's like every three years, I guess, somebody who owns a table at Rayo's invites me to have dinner there. And, you know, the food is just fine. It's you Does know, it live up to it, Michael? I've never been. Oh, it's red sauce Italian. You know, it, the, food, the food's good. Um, not great, but good. And uh, just the whole atmosphere, you know, the, all the wise guys and, you know, yeah. politicians. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, I'll, I'll take my corner seat in 1982 at Paredes on Columbus Avenue, a, oh a red sauce, sauce joint you own <laughs> over <laughs> rails. <laughs> How's that? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Last one of these. Assuming New York City is your favorite place? Because I know you yeah. live there and lived there for many years. What's number two, if you have a number two favorite city? In the United States? Yeah. Um, it would be close between Los Angeles and New Orleans. Los Angeles, um, you know, even though it's not a walking city, I like to walk. You know, I can walk 10 miles a day in L.A., just pick an area and walk around. And I, I, and I love the food. I love what you did in, in Los Angeles, you. your restaurants mm -hmm. over the years. And New Orleans, uh, just because it's unlike any other city in the United States, it has a whole different feeling and, and, and great food, also a great walking city, just those two. 
I, I second that on both. And, and L.A. has really grown up over the, the 30 years that I've been there. I mean, it's on par in terms of trending, trend leading uh food stuff as, you know, with New York and San Francisco. When I first moved there, it was kind of a, a two-restaurant town, Spago and anything else. But now uh, it's it's really kind of grown up. So I, I, I would second that. I honestly think L.A. is a trendsetter in food and New York follows. I, I think um, when I eat in restaurants in L.A., I just, you know, they're, they're ahead of us. They're always a little bit ahead of us. I wouldn't have said that, but I'm glad you did. Okay. I, I don't know that I disagree. Um, Michael, I wanted, there, there are a number of topics, as I mentioned, that I, that I want to cover with you. There's so much in your career that I've admired, places of yours that I've loved. And just reading about you over the years and following your advice and had the good fortune of being in business with you as well. But I really feel the need to kind of start with what we all experienced uh, last year, 20 and, and still experiencing this year. But the pandemic was was devastating, of course, for for restaurants. And then we saw racial justice protest. We had a, an election that was a very, you know, just a, a lot of stuff going on. I'm just I'm curious how you're feeling these days generally. So, um, look, um, uh, you know, I, th I think it's harder for people who are younger than I am. I'm 77 now. You know, I was able to build um, a good life away from my business. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm calm uh, at 77. Um, I'm not fearful of going broke uh, personally. So that sort of enabled me to take this all in without getting too emotionally involved. And I am emotionally involved. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. But our concern through this, and I know it sounds a little trite, but our concern for this has been how do we maintain the economic viability of our employees? And we've gone through three periods where, where things got tough. 9-11, uh, at that time, my only restaurants were in Las Vegas, Washington, D.C., and uh, and New York. Well, New York was hit. Washington, D.C. was hit. I remember they had uh, guided missiles uh, outside our restaurant in, in Union Station. Uh, uh, so, so we had a month where nobody was coming to our restaurants, literally. Uh, New York was basically closed down. We had five restaurants that were not accessible because the lower part of the city, if you remember, was closed down. Las Vegas, nobody could fly in. And Washington, where our restaurants were, were pretty much inaccessible. I didn't have to ask anybody uh, in my organization to uh, take a pay cut. Literally, um, my event, the first person who did it was Walter Rauscher, who um, runs my event department. And he came in and he said, I don't want anybody to be fired. We're all prepared to take substantial pay cuts. What do you need us to do? And one by one, every manager came to us from their restaurants because we sort of run this like a, um, a venture capital portfolio. You know, we, we establish the locations and um, the concepts, and we hire a general manager and a chef to run the restaurant. And after that, we're really sort of a knowledge source. If if they need, you know, if they need help or advice, we're there to give it to them. If they don't want to call us, I assume everything's all right until, until it's not. So um, all the managers, when we called them and said, what are you doing? They had already taken dramatic, you know, pay cuts. And 9-11, they did the same thing in 2008, 2009. 
this time around, which which seemed more severe than either of those uh, economically, um, uh, we we established um, a guideline that no matter how much money your your salary was, we assumed the people that made the most were able to make their way through this because we have good people who we think are fairly conservative uh, in, in their lifestyles. And um, we made a rule that nobody could get more than $50,000 annually. Well, we had people making $500,000 running businesses for us that took a pay cut of $450,000. And that enabled us to buy the time to see where we were in terms of government help and where we were with what landlords were going to do for us. Uh, and we stayed that way for a long time from, you know, mid-March until June. Nobody in the company was getting more than $1,000 a week. And uh, I guess my my office, which has 60-some-odd people in it right now, nobody makes more than 65% of their base salary. At the restaurants, you know, if they're... If they're Cash flowing positive, they back up to 100 percent of the salary. But it all it, it gave us time. So in terms of the business, I was able to stay calm and make decisions not based upon you know um, any pressure. Our banks were terrific. Most of our landlords were terrific. So that part was good. The the bad part was um, dealing with the politics, the racial in, injustice. Uh, I I just think. These last four years, and uh, you know, some of your listeners may not like this, but it's not because I'm a Democrat or Republican. It's just the way the Trump administration gutted everything and became a part of my thinking every single day. Uh, I, you know, I ju you just could not get away from it. Uh, you know, and it was, and every day you thought you saw the worst. The next day it was worse. You know, I I have one TV set in my house. I'm not a big television person, but um, I have now during the pandemic and stay inside. I watched too many Bruce Willis movies on Netflix or Nicolas Cage. I'm trying to find things that they're not in. Uh, I thought at times when I was listening to the news, I was going to throw something at the TV. I was so, so angry at our situation, our country situation. And, you know, every time I got that angry, I say, hey, it's my only TV. And I'm not going to go out and buy another one, you know. But that's the way I felt. I, I am relieved that that anger has lifted. And it's sort of lifted at the same time I have more hope for the business as, you know, the vaccine gets distributed and the efficacy and the herd immunity. And um, I'm really looking forward this year in our business when we can get back to being cash flow positive, paying people more, hiring more people. You know, that, that's, you know, I've always said, Brad, the only good thing I've done is, you know, we hire people. We've created jobs. That's my pleasure to, to, you know, to move the business forward and create more jobs. And we have wonderful people. It's, it, it's great. It's a nice envelope. You've done that exceptionally well. I, I want to stay on the, the subject, if you will, for a moment about the, just the, the, what we saw this year in terms of the um, issues around race, Michael. And do you feel that, um, I mean, obviously our country has a, has a troubled history and, you know, in our business, in our industry, you know, we deal with all kinds of folks. Do you think that 
what happened was necessary to expose the feelings that are out there, the, the, those that feel that the country is being taken, taken away from them? Or do you think that that was given unnecessary airtime? What, how, how do you feel about uh, what we saw and, and where we're going from here? I want to just preface that, that answer with something I learned when I was in my 30s. I, uh, Barbara Smith was a, a dear friend. We went out for a long time. We had a customer at my first restaurant, the Museum Cafe, where I bought, uh, where, which was my first restaurant, and it was the place in which I first met Barbara. She was a customer. And uh, John Ford was a photographer, he, successful photographer, um, you know, an African-American. And uh, Barbara was upset one day um, uh, early in our relationship because she went to um, rent an apart a new apartment and she felt she was turned down because of the color of her skin. And I came in and I was upset. And I explained to John Ford why I was upset. And John said, you're upset because Barbara didn't get the, the apartment. He said, why don't you try to put yourself in her shoes and think about how upset she is every day, you know, because she didn't get the apartment. You know, your, your upsetness cannot be as deep or, or you know, it, it just you you can't have the same feelings. And this is something she goes through every single day. And that was a great lesson for me. I think, you know, uh, it, it, it's very, very hard for people to put themselves, you know, white America to put themselves in, you know, African-American shoes and and understand the anger. And I think the only way to understand the anger is to see the anger. And so I, you know, I'm sort of happy that there's a Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm happy that there was these um, demonstrations and these confrontations. Um, I'm happy at the press coverage. I'm, I'm really sad about, you know, the fact that, you know, black American families have to have these dialogues with their kids on how to, how to feel safe or protect themselves. It's something that's always there and we haven't gone far enough as a country. And I don't think the press coverage has been enough. It should be constant. Uh, and thank God everybody has a camera now that they walk around with on their phone, because I think that's going to help a lot. But there's so much further to go. I, I, I don't I don't look at what the progress has been. I look at what the progress should be. <laughs> and, and there has been progress, but it's not anywhere close. Uh, and I sort of hate those things where, you know, somebody says, well, look, at, look at what's been accomplished. <laughs> you know, uh, we shouldn't have this issue to start out with, but we do. It's reality. And, you know, I, I just think the press coverage should be constant. Um, thank you, Michael. I, I'm going to come back to um, your involvement with Barbara, because I really you know, that was that was trailblazing. And the restaurant, of course, launched Barbara's uh, restaurant career and made her a brand and a household and a household name. But before I do, I'm, I'm curious, growing up, sitting around the, the Weinstein dinner table with your mom and dad, what kind of conversations took place then? Do you recall? <laughs> Yeah. Um, look, I had a, a middle class 
upbringing, the, the relationship between my mother and father was not always great. So a lot of time there was no dialogue at the dining room, dining room table. Uh, my mother was a, a bad cook. Um, uh, I had a, a golf career going, you know, uh, in high school, and that was fairly noteworthy in the area. Uh, so a lot of talk, talk was around, you know, that. But it was, you know, it was normal stuff, nothing that memorable. No business conversations. No, here's what I want you to do with your future, son. Oh, not, not at really. all. No. So you, you initially went to law school, correct? Right. And then decided to get into investment banking rather than pursue law? Yeah, I was offered a job through a friend of my father's. I, I went to law school, honestly, to stay out of the Vietnamese War. Um, uh, if you were going to graduate school in those years, you got a deferment. And then what happened, there was a lottery. They, they changed the draft system based upon a lottery, and uh, it was based upon your birthday. So it was like they had 365 ping pong balls, you know, and they pulled out a bunch of them and until the draft was filled and it turned out I was never going to be called. Uh, so law school sort of went in the background and I got a job in investment banking. So from there, you and a partner, you, you go to a place called the Museum Cafe. And I remember the Museum Cafe it was one of the first restaurants that my dad and I used to have regular meals at, and I was just blown away. It was, it was, for me, it was sophisticated. It just felt polished. There were hostesses there, but that was the place you, that caused you to really become infatuated with the restaurant industry, you know? And it was your, the first place that you owned, of course, but tell me about how that, how, what seduced you? So, uh, my partner was a guy named Kerry Olson, who was a male model who I was friendly with. And, uh, another friend of ours, Jim McMullen had opened up on the East side. A, rest, a small restaurant called Harper's that was jam-packed. And uh, Kerry had a lot of downtime in his life. He, he was trying to get an acting career together, but he was a very successful male model. And, um, and he said, we could do that, you know. And we found this place at 77th and Columbus Avenue that was 1,200 feet. Uh, we built the thing for $70,000. And because of a dearth of restaurants in the area, you know, in the 70s, we opened November 7th, 1975. At that time, as you know, as your dad know, knew, um, if you wanted to go out for dinner, you didn't stay on the Upper West Side. You used to go to Midtown, right. you know, and um, and if you wanted a steak, you probably had to wear a jacket and a tie. And there were few places that were relaxed, like P.J. Clark's or Harper's or J.G. Mellon's, you know, on the Upper East Side. But there really wasn't anything very much on the Upper West Side at the time. And if you wanted Chinese food, you went to Chinatown. And if you wanted Italian food, you went to Little Italy. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, sort of segmented. So we opened this restaurant and and what was great about it, we didn't have any money. So we left the front of the restaurant open to the street, which was the opposite of what everybody else was doing. But the street, you looked on the Museum of Natural History and the, the, those stand of trees up 77th Street between Columbus and Central Park West, which were breathtaking. And uh, we didn't have money to close the ceiling up. You saw all the wiring and the air conditioning. And, and it became a thing. 
we served everything from a hamburger to beef wellington, which was a dish that time, and anything from fish and chips to chadro. Uh, we used to sell, you know, we had a blackboard menu and, you know, you could buy one lamb chop, two lamb chops, three lamb. You could buy everything by the piece. We were trying to make it as easy as possible for anybody to come in. And we weren't, you know, we stayed open to four o'clock in the morning and we were full until four o'clock in the morning. What, it was what, extraordinary. What, what did you follow or whose advice or what instinctively did you did told you that hospitality was important? Because I, I my memories of Museum Cafe really I mean, the, the food. Yes. The setting. Yes. I love sitting there watching people walk by. It was a great people watching space. But I but I always remember being treated well there. And it was the first exactly. restaurant that I, as I said, that I went with my dad. And I just always felt like you walked in, you got acknowledged. Someone said thank you on the way out. I mean, did, did you know that instinctively, Michael, that that was going to be a, a key ingredient? I think so. You know, uh, I always used to tell our, our waiters and waitresses, you know, when a table pays, you say, thank you. Your business is important to us. And they said it. Uh, and it was, I mean, you know, and, and, you know, you get a little successful and you do stupid things that become memorable. I mean, you know, our, our food, if you remember, came with Chinese vegetables because we had a Chinese chef. The, the biggest day of the year was Chinese New Year's. Uh, we also, you know, the Upper West Side was, was changing dramatically and, uh, with gentrification. And a lot of those apartments on 77th Street and 81st Street were being renovated. And when you renovate an apartment, you don't have a kitchen, you know, and uh, people would come in for breakfast. We didn't serve breakfast. You know, we were serving our waiter meal, but people would come in and we didn't charge them. And, you know, they just sat down because they were good customers and, you know, regulars. And we said, come in for breakfast, you know. And so we did a lot of things that were a lot of fun. And. And you do get, you know, when you have something going where God has pointed down his finger and said, this is the one, this is the one, you'll have a great run here. And and we did. And and you get a little cocky and you start to do stupid things that other restaurants are afraid to do. And I, I remember I had Candace Bergen and Chevy Chase sitting on the hood of a car with a, with a, a checker cloth table cloth, you know, um, uh, eating dinner because we didn't have room for them inside. So we served them on a car and, you know, that became memorable. And, and, and Chris that, Reeves. These days that would go viral, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Reeves was, uh, you know, playing mm -hmm. Superman at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that the balloons for the Macy Days Parade when we opened the restaurant were blown up in front of us on Columbus Avenue and 77th Street. Had no idea. You know, all of a sudden, you know, we see these trucks come unloading these balloons and somewhere I have a photograph of Chris Reeves sitting in the window with the Superman balloon being blown up, you know, in front of him. And so there were a lot of things that start to happen that that um, that shouldn't happen. Uh, there was a girl named Merlan Taylor, who was a big, big model in New York, and um, and she had her we had a piano for New Year's Eve one night, but it, it was delivered to us on December 30th. Um, so we could have it for New Year's Eve on the 31st. And and um, it was a birthday on the 30th. And 
and everybody starts singing happy birthday. And all of a sudden, a guy stands up in the back and comes over and grabs her, literally, you know, hands on her head and gives her a big kiss on the lips. Looked like a crazy man. Sat down at the piano and started to clunk out a bad rendition of happy birthday. And then all of a sudden, it was like Brahms played it and like Beethoven played it. And it was Victor Borga. And, you know, things things happen when you have a hot restaurant that is so memorable. So, yeah, it was a good start to a career. Yeah, I have I have times like that, too. You know, we opened uh, Memphis down the street from the Museum Cafe on between yeah, 75th and 74th and 75th. There was a night that Stevie Wonder and his wife were headed to Memphis. They called me from a limousine and said they were headed there. And I said, you know, my dad's got something cool going on up at the cellar. I'd really prefer you guys come there and I'll meet you up there. And they redirected the limo. I met them at the cellar and Stevie ended up getting on the stage and performing for three hours in front of a packed house just spontaneously. It was it was amazing. So on that note, Michael, I want to turn to kind of a, a funny story. But first, Certainly want to acknowledge um, someone who, you know, of course, we've, we've talked about and I know was was really, really dear and special to you. And that is in Barbara Smith. And of course, um, she she passed away uh, a couple of years last year. And I want to offer condolences to uh, to her husband, Dan um, Gasby. But um, there's a there's a. And so with all due respect, there's, there's a bit of a funny story that that Michael and I uh, share. And, and uh, I confirmed with him recently because I wanted to be able to share it with the audience. So my dad, as I've mentioned on this show before, owned a, a popular restaurant on the Upper West Side called The Cellar. Uh, Michael and he were, you know, of course, in, in the same business. And Michael and Barbara Smith, who be B Smith, as we all came to know her, had a relationship, a romantic relationship, I, and I want to hear about that because I know that America came and and uh, the restaurant that you that you opened downtown, and I remember the first time seeing Barbara on the floor in that beautiful room, and I was like, oh boy, restaurants are in trouble <laughs> if if the combination is this room and that woman, that's going to be tough to beat. But uh, at any rate, my dad dated Barbara for a period of time. Michael and she had dated prior. They broke up. And my dad started to date Barbara and her birthday rolled around and Michael, I guess, hadn't quite uh, gotten over or decided that he wasn't finished with the relationship. And for Barbara's birthday, while she's dating, my dad decides to send a limousine to pick Barbara up. Michael, why don't you pick up the story from there so I don't get any of the facts wrong, because this is a well, great story. <laughs> yeah. So. I was very, very much in love with her. And um, and so basically, I, I somehow got a hold of a passport um, because I, I had gone up there to say hi uh, when I was close to her apartment one day. I knew where she kept her passport and I grabbed it. And then I sent a limo for her on her birthday. And I said, I'm taking you out. And she said, oh, OK. And we went to the airport and she said, where are we going? I said, it's a surprise. And we went on, on an Air France plane. You know, she saw Air France. She said, I don't have my passport. How are you going to get me on the plane? And I said, I have your passport. And, and at that time, she was supposed to go out with your father the next day. And she excused herself, and there was only public phones at that time. And I sort of stood away, and and uh, she called your father and said, uh, Michael's taking me to Paris. We had no clothing, no luggage or anything. And basically, we landed in Paris and, and stayed a couple of days in Paris and made our way 
down to the south of France to, to Saint-Tropez and, you know, had a, a wonderful time buying clothes along the way and washing the clothes we bought. And it was great. And it reestablished the relationship again. And what was Barbara was extraordinary. I mean, as a person, uh, she she just she loved she loved people. She was very, very smart and very funny. I mean, just hilariously funny the way she saw saw the world. And um, uh, but when you talk about America and Barbara on the floor, uh, the way she handled people was 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 great. So when we got back um, at some point, I always knew she loved the restaurant business and hospitality. And this location became available in the worst part of the city at the time, which was 47th Street and 8th Avenue. I mean, it was some, some some write-ups refer to it as the theater district. It was really not quite the theater district. <laughs> right. It was, uh, you know, prostitution, transvestite, drugs <laughs> and everything. And I said to Barbara, I said, you know, we can make a great restaurant here. And um, so we built something that was very modern uh, because it was the antithesis of everything around. It stood out. I mean, um, Barbara was once interviewed in the, by the New York Times, and she said, uh, the, the, the person said, why here? And she said, Michael likes urban decay. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it was true because we have a chance to change the neighborhood. And I said to but Barbara, you've done that in several locations of yours around the city. I mean, you you were known for picking kind of gentrifying, not quite yet there neighborhoods, making great deals with landlords. In fact, I think you were one of the first restaurateurs to beat up landlords and, and make them put in money for the build out, what we call tenant improvement dollars these days. So at any rate, we, you know, I said to Barbara, we'll build business one one person at a time with you just do your thing. Go over the tables. Make them happy. And then there was a guy named Tony Schwartz. Uh, his daughter, Michelle, worked for us. And uh, I get a call from this guy one day, introducing himself. He said, you really should come up and see me. I could help you with that restaurant. I said, in what way? He says, well, I'm, I'm an advertiser. I can... You know, I could bring people to the restaurant. Well, we never advertised in our lives for all the restaurants. And it was going fine. And I sort of said, well, thank you. I'll, I'll, let me have your number and I'll call you when I can do it. And, I, and, and back to the audience these days, there was no such thing as publicists for restaurants back correct. then. Right? Correct. And uh, I get a call two weeks later. You haven't called me back. He said, please come up here. I can really help you. And, you know, I go to Michelle, who's his daughter working for us. And I said, I don't want to be rude, but, you know, I'm, I don't advertise. She said, you really should speak to my father. So I, I go to this townhouse on 56th Street um, where he had a complete studio, broadcast studio. And Tony Schwartz was a guy who um, had done something like 56 political campaigns for the likes of Robert Kennedy and and um, he had reintroduced uh, Chrysler to radio for Lee Iacocca. He taught a class at Harvard, but he never left his house. He had that disease where he was afraid to leave his house. And he said, you know, Michael, he said, there is a radio station that only deals WQXR where most people going to theater are listeners of WQXR. That makes up the bulk of their listenership. And he said, if you give me, if you give me uh, 
the the right to advertise on QXR at drive time when people are coming back into New York, you know, uh, to go to theater. He said, I could fill up that restaurant. And he had a guy he worked with who was his announcer. And I said, why don't we put Barbara on the air? And he said, well, what does she know? And, uh, you know, and I said, if you want to hear a voice that is like a magnet that will get everybody to come in, put Barbara on the air. And we put Barbara on the air. And we had 120 seats after the first ad. The next day, we had 300 reservations. It was his knowledge of, you know, he, he was he told me, do you ever see a mortgage ad in the newspaper? I said, I really don't notice him. He pulled out a newspaper. There were 20 of them in the New York Times. He said, that's because you're not interested. He said, you have to advertise where you're, you know, to people who are interested. And theater goers listen to WQXR. So that was that made the restaurant grow faster. And the great thing about that restaurant, I was always told Barbara, here was this very cool bar filled with the most stylish, best looking African-Americans in the world. I mean, in the world, you know, um, uh, Amon would be there or, you know, whoever was there. But the greatest looking people and in the dining room with these old 55 year old Jewish women going to the theater, you know, <laughs> you know, I want to I want to ask you about the, the, the racial. Yeah, go ahead. The go racial ahead. dynamic. You know, my dad's place, the cellar, our clientele, although we were in a very um, multi-ethnic neighborhood, 95th Street and Columbus Avenue, our clientele happened to be 98 percent black for whatever reason. And when I got involved in opening Memphis on 75th Street, you know, some 20 blocks away, I was I was concerned in 1983 about how my clientele or our clientele who would follow me downtown would mix with the Columbus Avenue crowd that, you know, I, I knew patronized restaurants down there, which meant mostly a mostly white crowd. It, it ended up being fine. I'm curious, did any of that cross your mind? I, I know you were in fact, you were in love with Barbara. She's a beautiful woman, but you're also a very savvy businessman. Did you think about the the whether or not the, the races would mix? Would it be a comfortable environment? Was there ever a moment where you thought, hmm, maybe this is going to be a little risky? Never thought about it. Uh, and there was no, you know, from my point of view, I had a great looking restaurant with a great partner, you know, and that's all I needed. Um, I didn't th I really didn't think about it. Um, I was delighted with who came and uh the, the only time I ever got mad, um, I'm trying to remember who was the reviewer for the New York Times. He wrote a review of... Uh, was of, it Brian Miller? It was Brian Miller, right. He wrote, wrote a review. I wrote a letter to the Times. It was a disgraceful review. Uh, it was just a racist review. That's the only time, uh, you know, I ever got upset and thought about you know, who comes to restaurants and how mm -hmm. other people would feel about it. To me, it was, you know, it was natural. I mean, you know, uh, I was delighted at the mix uh, that she was Barbara. You know, everybody loved Barbara. There was I, I never met a person, you know, who didn't go, wow, she she's spectacular. You know, and um, I knew I had that when we opened the restaurant together. I mean, we were partners. I knew I had it. And it ne never occurred to me that it wouldn't be successful. 
You know, Michael, as a as an African American operator, restaurateur myself, I've I've more recently raised the issue of the lack of of black food journalists and how that has been to the detriment of African American operators, chefs, the cuisine, the history, the story, what have you. It's interesting to me that you would have have observed that. The review from Brian Miller and interpreted it as, as racist back in the eighties. But that was, that was your take on it. What do you remember without the specifics, but do you remember what it was about the review that made you, that still makes you feel that way? I, I, the only thing I recall, uh, was he, he talked about the crowd and the way they dressed. And, you know, it was like, this is unusual to have a successful black owned restaurant and why should it be unusual, you know, and, and why, why are you mentioning, you know, the crowd in such detail and it wasn't mentioned as, you know, these are just people. <laughs> it was sort of taking a biased view and it, it just didn't read right to me. I wish I remembered it more, but you know, no, I, I appreciate that. When so so B Smith's becomes this huge success. Barbara is working the room as you thought she would. What you had in mind works tremendously well. I mean, I remember driving up Eighth Avenue and glancing over at the the because the restaurant the bar ran along Eighth Avenue for almost right. it looked like almost a, a whole block. I think it might have been half a block. But I just recall I would see. The, the bar jammed packed with with folks. And I just knew that the restaurant was doing great. And, you know, the competitive nature in, in our business, it, it caused me to, to worry about my dad's place, the seller whose clientele, you know, who we relied on, you know, a lot of those same folks. And there was this emergence of, you know, I guess better mousetraps as, as you know, sometimes it's referred to. I know Michael Van uh, worked for you for yeah. a while as a GM, and then Michael went on to open the Shark Bar. And, you know, there, there wasn't quite a proliferation, but there were certainly some new places coming on. Alberta had Jezebel uh, on 45th and 9th. Did you, with what Barber became as a as a household name, Michael, did you, did you see that coming? Did you think that she would become, I know she didn't like to be referred to as the Black Martha Stewart, but that's kind of how a lot of folks know her. Did you, did you see that coming? Look, I did not have a good relationship with Dan, her husband, but Dan had worked for King Productions and uh, apparently had something to do with Oprah's success in terms of syndicating her. Um, so I think Dan really took took over at some point in managing Barbara's career. I actually had had conversations, um, and I told Dan uh, at the time, uh, about opening a Barbara Smith Casino in Las Vegas, there were there were property there was a property for sale, uh, a rundown casino, that you know I thought was it would be worth having Barbara as a partner and doing a casino based around her. Uh, she was so dynamic uh, that in anybody's any professional hands um, who understood syndication and understood branding. There was no there was no limit to what could have been accomplished with her. And and she sort of proved that. Right. Um, her 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 uh, style show was great the way, the, you know, 
And all she had to do was smile. I mean, it was, she radiated. And um, I think Dan did a good job in terms of getting her out there. But, but it was Barbara. Barbara could, could win over anybody. But I, I do want to give kudos to you, Michael, because to, to launch an African-American woman, I mean, she, for what Barbara became that, that, you know, you put your expertise, your reputation and your, and the financial support on the line to, to launch what became a phenomenal career. Um, I just want to acknowledge you for that. And, and, uh, you know, we're all, we're all a little bit better for having experienced B Smith in our lives and, and, you know, to a large part, we have you to thank for that. So thank you. Um, I want to turn to, yep. I want to turn to Vegas, Michael, since you just brought that up. And, you know, when you, when you, when you decided to, to launch in Las Vegas, I believe New York, New York was, was your first venture there. I, I don't think that the food scene and the hotel scene had really started the renaissance. I, I think you were pretty much at the forefront of that. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, taking over the food and beverage at New York, New York. And, and I think I read somewhere where you were doing like 25,000 meals a day, but you ran all of their food and beverage. I think that was kind of setting a precedent. Was it at the time? Yeah, uh, it was unusual for a hotel, first of all, to be uh, bring in an outsider to run, you know, 85 percent of the food and beverage, which is what we have. It was also unusual for that operation to stay non-union, which we have been able to do. I have Gary Prim, the guy who's the developer of New York, New York, to thank for that. Uh, you know, he kept coming to New York to try to find restaurateurs somehow through um, Warner Leroy, who owned you know, Tavern on the Green and Maxwell Plum. Uh, he went to Warner to try to make a deal to put Tavern on the Green in the in the middle of New York, New York. And Warner said, well, look, I'll allow I'll, I'll do a deal with you for the trade name. He said, but I can't run it. But there's a guy, Michael Weinstein, who could do it. Let me introduce you to him. And so what happened is Prim and I met one day. Um, it was a nice spring day in New York. He never saw any of my restaurants. He walked, We just walked for four hours talking about it, and he invited me out to to Vegas. Um, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things, let me send the plane for you. I said, I ain't going on a private plane. There are plenty of commercial planes. And so uh, we went out and saw. I saw the plans, and uh, he said, can you find me a steakhouse? And and I called everybody, you know, and nobody really understood it. Finally, I called Jerry Brody, who owned Gallagher's. And I said, Jerry, you got to you got to do this. Jerry was a friend. And uh, Jerry said, I'll do it. And then Jerry, about a couple of months after, you know, speaking to Prim, said, you know, Weinstein's a better operator than I am. Why don't you let me give him the trade name and, you know, he'll operate it. And then, of course, Warner... Prim could not make a deal with Warner that was it was a good deal for Prim. So he decided to put America in the middle of the, the casino. And then all of a sudden we had the steakhouse, we had America. And then he kept asking me, can I do the food court? Can I do this? And we wound up doing everything, um, banquets, employee dining room, room service. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, uh, Jonathan Waxman was my executive chef at the time, and he laid out the kitchen. I always tell the story, and he had great people that he brought in. But I tell the story, we bought uh, $4.5 million worth of kitchen equipment. And I was so frightened, I, I said to the guys that were selling us the equipment, look, you got to let me give you back what we don't use. 
because uh, I don't know we're going to use all this stuff. Jonathan's laying it out. Can't be a 20% restocking charge. Could be a 5%, but you got to let me send it back to you. You know, I can't afford this. And um, when all was said and done, out of $4.5 million, we returned $27,000 worth of stuff. Jonathan got it exactly right. Wow. Um, the first night, we did $270,000 in business the day they opened up the hotel. And we got it right. Paul Gordon was my general manager. He had been with me for you know 25 years at that point, still with me. It was just a terrific effort on everybody's behalf. Well, I want, I want to give you some additional props here, Michael, um, <laughs> because you you are known in the industry as, you know, really one of the just the pioneers. And one of the things that that um, I think any anybody who's been in our industry can appreciate, you were way ahead of the curve on offering health care to employees. And back in the, I believe in the 80s, late 80s, uh, you started offering healthcare to any of your employees that worked a minimum of three shifts. You also would offer to actors who would get an acting job, a guaranteed job upon return. And then, and, and as we know, of course, our industry is, you know, is, is filled with creative. So I'm sure that, that went over quite well. But one of the things that just really caught me when Ernie's, Ernie's was a huge restaurant that Michael opened on the Upper West Side. I think it was the biggest restaurant to date at the time. I think you seated what 300 people, something close to that at Ernie's 325, 325. At some point, fortunately, I don't believe anyone was in the building at the time, but the building collapsed. And it took about eight months to rebuild Ernie's. Michael kept everyone on payroll throughout the entire eight month period until Ernie's was rebuilt. And it's, it's those kinds of things, Michael, that, you know, people like me who work with people, uh, in our, in our industry, it's, it's just unheard of. And I know as an independent operator and all the conversation around healthcare these days and it, it, for an independent, it's very hard, if not impossible to provide healthcare. Just some of these things I think have really endeared you to the industry that I know you love. Well, thank you. Where did you read all of this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did a little research. So, Michael, you went on to, to do some stuff at the Venetian Hotel and um, teamed myself up with David Rabin and Will Regan in New York, who at the time had Lotus. This was 1999. I had the Sunset Room in uh, in Los Angeles, and we opened a place called V-Bar on the uh, casino level at the Venetian, which ran for about 15 years. How did, how did the Venetian relationship come about? Um, so Lou Silvestri, who was the uh, leasing guy for uh, New York, New York, moved over to the Venetian. And uh, he called me up and I had just bought Lutez. And, um, and he called me up and he said, uh, you know, there's opportunities here. Are you interested? I said, well, you know, I don't want to just do one restaurant. Uh, are there more than one opportunity? And it turned out that there were several. And they were very excited about getting uh, uh, Lutes. Uh, uh, that was a big name for them. Uh, we also built something called Tsunami, which was on the, I guess, the, the mall floor, which the second floor of the above the casino. Uh, we had four of the fast food court uh, positions. And then what happened is they had what was called the Rialto Bar that was doing terrible. It was a piano bar. And uh, I went to Rob Goldstein. I said, this is awful. And, and, you know, it was nice. Rob was 
acting as the CEO, even though Sheldon Addison was officially the CEO. Um, and we had a nice relationship. And I said, you know, that, that place is just awful. And um, you really got to go to New York and see some of some of these cool bars. And I think they would do well here. And, and he did a little research. He said, I think you're right. Who should I get? I said, well, you should get me. He said, what do you know about, you know, cool bars? I said, nothing, but I have the right guys. And that's how you, Will, and David got involved. And uh, and we had a great run. We oh, had it was a fantastic, run. man. Yeah, it really was. Had and a blast then, there. Sheldon got Sheldon sort of got mad at me uh, when they did the second phase of um, of the mall. He he had leased my space, Tsunami, thinking he could move me uh, to Barney's, and I didn't want to be moved. And um, so he got mad at me and uh, basically bought me out of Tsunami at a at a fair price. And he he you know he just passed away, but he said it was a fair price. You know. And Goldstein thought I could have gotten more, but, you know, I, I just wanted a fair price. So they bought me out of that and Lutece and out of the fast food court. And we still had a little while to run on, on the V-Bar at that point, but I knew they were never going to renew the lease. Um, Sheldon didn't, you know, didn't want me around. Uh, so that's, that's why it ended. But it was a great run. I have you to thank. Well, I have you to thank. Thank you. And David and Will, uh, it was a great partnership. So, Michael, I, I knew this was going to just go too fast. But um, as we wind down, some folks are predicting a, a roaring 20s type of return to you know our industry where bars and restaurants are going to jam pack because people are ready to get out and socialize. Others are saying not so fast. I read an article in The Wall Street Journal that predicts office space is never going to return to what it was. What's your take? So I think if you have the right brand, and not meaning multiples of, you know, a named restaurant, but like Brian Park is a brand, uh, you know, um, Sequoia in Washington, D.C. is a brand. Uh, what we're seeing in the South, where people are not paying as much attention to guidelines, CDC guidelines, our Florida restaurants are doing really well. Our Alabama restaurants are doing well. Uh, the The... I think people want to socialize. They're not going to be able to go to clubs. I think they're going to avoid bars until there's herd immunity. Older people, young people, I think, will, you know, are out there already. Um, I'm sort of thinking it's going to be okay. Uh, what worries me more than anything else is the disruption deliveries. It's been a huge disruption. Those are restaurant seats, essentially being replaced by dining room seats in your house. Um, I know that, you know, I became a, a homebody during this period of time. And I've learned, you, you know, to have my kids come over. Uh, they both have their own apartments. We sit around and we cook something. And it's delightful. You know, I used to be out of force of habit in a different restaurant every single night whether they're my own or others, you know, um, I, I like that restaurant scene. I want, and I'll, I know I'll return to it, but I really wonder how many people won't return as frequently, you know, cause they've, they've learned to enjoy family meals at home again. But I think overall it'll be good. I, I think it'll be good. And I think it'll happen pretty quickly. And I think office buildings will be occupied again. Um, there's something about the creativity of people 
being together and the ad hocracy of being able to walk into somebody's office and getting an answer. You know, right now I have 60 people all working from home. And if, <laughs> if I, if I want an answer, it's not like walking 20 feet, you know, all of a sudden I got to make a phone call, hope that they're there, leave a message, hope that they call back. Um, it makes it, it, it working at home is fine. We've learned to do it, but it, it loses some immediacy and therefore creativity and People don't like to wait for answers. Um, you know, we have a rule in our, in our office, and I've always been great about this. Uh, every phone call has to be returned every day. I don't care if it's 11 o'clock at night. You have to return a phone call. You don't want people carrying over their anxiousness to the next morning. Get people the answers. And, um, and with everybody working at home, we're not able to do that as well as we used to. So I think offices come back for that reason. Well, Michael, it's it's really been informative and a pleasure. And you truly are one of the, the leaders in our industry. And, and so many of us look up to you and admire you for not just your business success, Michael, but just the kind of person that you are, the man that you are. I mean, you, you're just a tremendous example of how to operate successfully and also do good. Thank you so much, Michael, for being a guest today on Corner Table. All the best to you. Thank you. I'm honored. Take care. So, everybody, it's it's the time of the show that I really look forward to um, every uh, corner table talk. And that's a little time with my dear, dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz. What's going on? Oh, God, lots is going on, as always. I mean, it's just picking and choosing which we want to talk about today. And I think what I'm going to explore is the fact that in the last two weeks, I've been inundated with customizing designer travel bubbles, mm -hmm. if I could use that terminology. I'm going to use the terminology because in the last year and a half, it's kind of become what we understand when people are moving around, like the NBA, WNBA. And generally, when I take people on the road, we kind of have that anyway. It just doesn't have the restrictions we have to be mindful of. Only now people are kind of ready. I think we've lived the last couple of weeks, couple of months, getting feeling a little bit more safe about how we do that. Also, locations are ready for us to do that. So this means um, some, we have two coming up in August, one in October, one in November, one in December already. Um, 20 people per. Um, generally, you have to be 10 in a space. So it's also accommodating that. But in my context, I can get to figure out what people really want to experience. So I can assure that the travel experience is full without the risks. And so they range from everything like writer's retreats, people wanting to shut down in a sabbatical and focus on what they need to draft. We have a couple of, the one we did a couple of years ago, Wisdom, Wellness, and Work is kind of like the essentials of life balance. People are really ready to figure out that again and get on that page. We have a couple of study abroads. They want to use the month of September to just do a three, four week immersion for their academic studies and also getting to know culture and that. So I've been working on that the last couple of weeks and I'm excited because it means I'm, I'm re-engaged the way I like. One of the things that comes up for me when um, I'm starting to envision some of the people that uh, you're able to coalesce around mm -hmm. these excursions, I mean, the, you probably handle up 50, 60, 70 phone calls on a busy day. I mean, I, I, I've been around you. I know what your phone sounds like, and it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, but 
And the, the folks that you attract, though, are, are people from Susan Taylor to a gentleman who I'd never heard of from Baltimore doing some beautiful things in the community. Yeah. And the, the conversations that emerge at night around a simple dinner of rice and peas and fish and those simple arrangements and opportunities for people to just connect with one another is something that I think is just really just so in your wheelhouse and your special skill set. Can you just talk about how the mix of people, how, how do you even cultivate that? Well, it is invitational, right? Mm-hmm. So I, that's why there's no website that advertises. It's not just a come one, come all. I could refer people um, to different places and I do that a lot. But when I'm selecting people, it's people I know who need the experience who yearn for it, who wouldn't pause to do it, but should, and who may need to hear their echo in another person that they're sharing a moment with whom they would never have thought was their twin. So I hear that a lot. You know, sometimes people are paying the doubles, the price for a double, but they don't have a companion they're traveling with. And I'm entrusted to give them a roommate and, it's, you know, adults traveling. Right. So and they'll always come out and say, how did you know? We would know each other like that. So I think it's listening. It's just one of the things early on in my life, being surrounded by cultures, people coming from parents and grandparents who really assessed and trusted people as they were. And so you're able to dive in. I remember one time we had a group, the age range was 25 to 55. And someone thought that that was too rangeful. But you want to say, no, their hearts and natures were all the same. How they were wired was very much the same. Their humor was very much the same. Their sense of social impact. And all of them happened to have been reigning in their respective lives, but needed privacy. You know, I'm going to self-relate here for a second because, you know, in a restaurant, that's what I try to do. I try to curate an environment that is pleasing, you know, musically, lighting-wise, the food. And what I've seen you do is just because of your energy and your spirit, when people are in your presence and their phones are left in their rooms and we're sitting around a, a fire and it's it, there's stars out in the sky. I mean, just things that come out of those kinds of interactions and conversations and in some cases are life changing, but definitely memorable. Well, you know, most people move fast. Americans move fast. That's why the delegations are nine days, one full week bookended by two weekends, because early on, People would hit the ground and they would bring Brooklyn with them. They would bring Chicago with them and they would expect where they were going. And it didn't respect the spaces we were in. So we started to change it, move it a certain way. And we start in the city so people can kind of like touch concrete to concrete. And then we just move it out gradually. And I always find by the fourth day, people have an accent, (laughs) you know, because they're moving to the music or the sounds. They're less inhibited. They're not trying to deal with the ceiling being too high, they suddenly realize the sky's the limit. That for me is the joy of being able to curate these things. Well, that's what we're trying to get across with how we move. And Ambassador, there is no one that I can think of that is a better spiritual tour guide than you. So thank you once again you. for these brilliant insights and sign me up for everything. I'm okay. there with you. And we'll be providing this information for our subscribers. Yeah. We hope you all subscribe. And when you go to our um, Instagram, you'll see or any of our socials, you'll see places where all of the websites and social contacts for some of the things that we're talking about, uh, you'll be able to find them there. So Ambassador, thanks again. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. 
Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.